0: So we are going to embark on a hopefully only few hour long discussion on critical race theory. There will be breaks built in. So if you've never been to a discipleship class before, uh, this handout will serve you well as like a roadmap of what we're going to cover, approximately when categorically that will be covered. Um, So these are all broken up. You can see there's a total of six like big headings. Those are going to be the six different sessions or uh, pockets of time that we're going to try to hit. And then in between each of those, we'll take a break for Q&A, for you to use a bathroom, restock on snacks, get some water, whatever you want to do there. Um, so the goal is to work through this in hopefully a kind of... um is he, are you wearing a mic? Yes. Okay, sorry. Right here. <laughs> Jared gave me a hard time last time I wore the white mic with a, a black shirt. He didn't like that, so I... Uh, <laughs> it's supposed to be disguised more, I guess. I don't know. Um, So anyway, that is kind of a roadmap of where we're going. So if you have questions that you're thinking about in relation to this topic, you can either ask them whenever you want or the better thing to do would be to look and to see categorically when those fit and we can just kind of hit it when we get there. So, and then if, when there's time at the end, if there's nothing that's been addressed or you just have a question about the topic in general, when we're done going through everything, that's kind of uh, open mic, open discussion, whatever we want to do at that point. So, um, and then Uh, Big shout out to uh, the Wilsons for hosting. This is their house, so they are, I don't know, they've been very accommodating so far. So you can give them a round of applause, yeah. Yeah, To be determined, we're not done yet. (laughs) All right. So we are going to start on our first session together, and that is going to be under that first heading, uh, There is Nothing New Under the Sun. And... What I would like to do with our time uh, in this first session is just examine the historical reality of false teaching in the church. What it looks like, what are the categories and ways of sifting through false teaching. And we're going to use a particular case study within the first couple hundred years of the church uh, with a church father and how he dealt with a particular false teaching that was in his midst. The reason I wanna underscore all that and take a look back before we look at critical race theory or any of the topics we're gonna talk about tonight is because I think it's important to understand that the church has is facing things today that are just repackagings of things that it has faced hundreds and thousands of years ago. There is nothing new under the sun as Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse nine says. And so I think it's appropriate for us to examine how consistent false teaching is over time, what it looks like, and that might help us to learn from our past so we can go forward as more informed people. Um, as a side note, uh, I want to give a credit to my uh, church history professor for this. This is Dr. Sean Wright. He is responsible for exposing me to a lot of this material initially, uh, as well as assembling some of these quotes in their more reduced and readable forms. If you don't know some of these early church fathers, the translations are a little Old English sometimes, so he has updated some of the quotes for for our benefit. <laughs> so that will make it hopefully more clear. So. The first thing I want to uh, read to you is a quote from a guy named Irenaeus. And that quote is, it should be in your handout as well. It's the very first one. I'm just going to read it and we're going to talk about why he would say that and what was the specific context for him addressing false teaching. He says these words, For their error is not displayed as what it is, lest it should be stripped naked and shown up. It is craftily decked out in an attractive dress and made to seem truer than the truth itself to the inexperienced because of the outer appearance. Irenaeus was a church father in the first couple hundred years of the church, and what he was up against was a false teaching that later we would categorize as what's called Gnosticism. And the false teaching of Gnosticism in the early church took on the form of a certain group of people, a certain elite group of people that claimed to have a secret knowledge, which is where that term comes from, about Scripture, a secret kind of revelation about how the storyline of Scripture fit together. And this is a very dangerous false teaching. And I want to read another quote from Irenaeus that explains why. These are, by the way, all these quotes are pulled out from his, uh, his work on against heresies. And this second quote, I think, is rather revealing about what exactly Gnosticism is. And it's not in your handout, so just listen and I'll try to read it carefully. He says this, So then lest some should be made prey through my fault, like sheep by wolves, not recognizing them because of their outwardly wearing of sheep's clothing, whom the Lord wanted us to guard against. So what he's saying is there's people which are wolves and they dress themselves outwardly in sheep's clothing. And he says the reason why they're wolves in sheep's clothing is because they talk like us, though thinking very differently. So I thought it necessary, my dear friend, after reading their commentaries as they call them and all of those of the disciples of Valentinus, who is the particular Gnostic in his case, and having met some of them and becoming familiar with their point of view, I thought it necessary to expound to you their profound mysteries which we shall not accept since not all of them have sufficiently purged their brains of this false teaching. So he's writing this work against heresies to encourage the early church. And what he's saying is what he did in preparation for facing false teaching was he exposed himself intimately with the details of their particular brand of Gnosticism. So the thing he's up against is people who use the same scripture the same vocabulary, the same canon of scripture. They would confess with their mouth the same belief in Christ. They would say that Christ was here in bodily form. But when they are saying all of those terms, they mean totally different things with the same words. That's what makes Gnosticism so dangerous is because the church was up against a heresy that used all of its same vocabulary, but meant totally different things by that vocabulary. That was the danger of Gnosticism. And you're going to notice as we're going to move forward eventually that's a lot of the kind of common problems we bump into even today with many false teachings as well so that's what he was up against in the early church so that was Irenaeus that was the Gnosticism that he faced and i think it's probably important to spell out what exactly it takes for something to qualify as false teaching worthy of spending a lot of time and significant time dealing with Um, Michael Horton, who's a, uh, he's a current writer and author, uh, he, said, he had this to say, I think this was back in 1994 that he wrote this. He says, heresy could be defined as any teaching that directly contradicts the clear and direct witness of the scriptures on a point of salvific importance. That's a key idea that we're going to draw out. It's on any point that contradicts with regards to salvation or salvific importance. What that doesn't mean is that anything that you disagree with preference-wise qualifies as heresy within the church. Everything is, is debatable within the church. Everything is argued and reasoned on the basis of scripture. Those things which are primary with regards to salvation is what we would say is orthodoxy. And those things which deviate from that primary orthodoxy is what we would consider heresy. Heresy is not people disagreeing with you about what kind of music you play in the church. That is not heresy. You might have a different preference on those kinds of things, but it's not an issue of salvific importance. And I think that's important to spell out because when we, when we reason back, especially as we study scripture and we even come to our own convictions, there's a certain danger in believing very strongly things about scripture, which is that you can make your preferences and your assumptions in every single case monolithically what everyone else's preferences and assumptions should be. And that's not the case. We should not do that as a church. There's such a thing as charity, which is going to become very important in discussions like this. And I think Michael Horton's definition on heresy is very helpful because what we're trying to tease out is what are the big ticket items that the church needs to be aware of and to separate from and what are things which are okay debates to have in-house, okay? So there's a difference between those two things and I think Michael Horton's definition is helpful. Uh, There's another uh, writer, um, Harold O.J. Brown. He says it this way. He says that the early church limited the label heresy. It did not refer simply to any doctrinal disagreement, but to something that seemed to undercut the very basis for Christian existence. Practically speaking, heresy involved the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. So the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. Sorry, uh, I should have scrolled there. Thanks, Tara. The doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. Those are the two things which qualify as salvific importance. If you deviate on doctrine as regards to the doctrine of God, you've probably committed some form of heresy. I'll give you an example of this. If we say that Christ was 100% God, but not really authentically man, he was just pretending to be a man, then that is a heresy because it assaults not any random teaching of scripture. It assaults the very nature of who Christ is. And what that does is it leads into What Christ did on the cross could he really have been our substitute there on the cross if you believe false things about God you might say that there is one God and he exists only as one person you're a Unitarian you would say that there's one God he doesn't have many persons there's not three different persons in the Trinity that would be Unitarianism that would also be considered a heresy because it deviates on the doctrine of God it deviates on the doctrine of who God the Father is and how the three persons of the Trinity relate to one another So those are things that would be considered false teachings at the level of heresy. Now, the reason I'm spelling this all out in detail, what we're going to try to carefully define heresy as is because as we move into the weeds of issues in our day, it can be very tempting to have a visceral reaction to something that we don't like or something that uh, maybe we have some baggage coming into. And so I think it's helpful to look into history to something that we're not actually intimately involved with, and we can get ourselves kind of Uh, landmarks and guard points about what is and what isn't true. It can give us guidelines essentially to follow. So I think history is very helpful in that sense because as we live our lives, we have convictions. And when we have convictions, we can run into the issue of having gut responses become objective truth claims when we deal with people. And so we need to be careful about what we consider false teaching versus what is just a preference difference. And we're going to try to very carefully tonight tease those different pieces out. So those are the quotes. I want to just read from you uh, a passage of Scripture. If you want to turn there with me as well in your Bibles, it is 2 Peter chapter 2. Second <clears throat> Peter chapter 2, and we're just going to be in verse 1 of 2 Peter 2. So Peter has uh, these words to say, and I think it's a a warning that we can all hear from and something that obviously we're trying to discuss and consider together tonight. He says this to, to the church, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed they will exploit you with false words their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep now those verses i think spell out for us very similar to what we were saying here in these quotes there's a kind of false teaching that goes away from difference of opinion and into the category of this person isn't even a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. This person has stepped over the boundary of orthodoxy and into false teaching. And you'll notice some key language in that passage that he says. He says, there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies. And then he qualifies what he says by saying that this kind of heresy is of the nature where it denies the master who bought them. So it denies Jesus Christ. And they're going to bring upon themselves swift destruction. So this is not false teaching and they're wrong on this, but they're still saved, this brings upon them destruction. By that, it means uh, destruction that Christ warned about. And many are going to follow their sensuality. This is the danger of heresy, is that it becomes attractive. Remember, that's what Irenaeus said, that the heresy is dressed up and made to look more true than the truth itself. So many people are going to be led astray by this. We shouldn't expect heresy to present itself in its naked truth. Even uh, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He looks to be attractive, and that's what is the dangerous piece about it. And the way of truth, because of these things, will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. So these false words, this false teaching, is meant to exploit, it's meant to lead astray. And those who propagate this kind of false teaching would be considered heretics by the church. That's where that term comes from. A heretic is someone who preaches and teaches heresy, To the church. That's probably also worth saying at this point not everyone who believes something falsely is a heretic. I would even go so far as to say if someone is within a church and is under the teaching of that church and they have some aberrant beliefs about some core issues, that doesn't necessarily make them a heretic. That's not a safe place to be by any means, and those are things that would need to be corrected. But a heretic is explicitly someone who would teach heresy and convince and argue for heresy, trying to convince other people of those things as well. A heretic is a very uh, exclusive kind of term. And if you just throw that term around to anybody, you can end up completely undermining the meaning and the weight of what it's trying to convey. Now, with just a little bit of time, I want to examine what Irenaeus is getting at when he says that it's made to look uh, more true than the truth itself. How is it possible for something that's false to appear to be more true than the actual truth of scripture. How is that possible? Well, in his quote, one of the things he says is that this is made to appear more true than the truth itself. Notice to whom that appears true to, it appears that way to inexperienced people, to the inexperienced. Because of its appearance, the inexperienced are deceived by this. So then as Christians, we wanna get out of the category of inexperienced very quickly. Right? We know that there's such a thing as someone who is an inexperienced believer, someone who has weak faith, someone who struggles with core truths and doesn't really know how to put everything together. And if someone comes along who claims to love the Lord and claims to live a holy life and claims to do things and preach and teach the scriptures and can quote scripture, that person won't have the ability to sift whether this is good or bad teaching. That's the danger of immaturity in the church. That's why the church needs to carefully guard and shepherd those kinds of people and it needs to teach and instruct them in orthodoxy. But the, the application of that, I think, to all of us is that we need to, as best as we can, get out of the category of inexperience. And so then the, the natural question to that might be, how? How do we do that? Well, we don't have time to go through all of his uh, writing on Against Heresies, but Irenaeus has some pretty interesting observations as to how a Christian in the early church could defend themselves against Gnosticism. And he he uses uh, a lot of convoluted language and really consistent reasoning to get there. But essentially what he says is, the way to tell if something is false teaching is to know the scripture so well that you can tell when it's been taken out of context. And he, he argues that this is not something that's particularly difficult to do. And he's arguing that Christians should do this before the printing press. He's saying Christians should know their Bible so well that they can recognize the misuse and misapplication of scripture by its plain use. He actually argues later in his Against Heresies. This is, those are opening quotes from his, from his work. He argues later in the work that if you are a Christian and you know your Bible well and you hear what these Gnostics preach and teach, it will be plainly evident to you that they have taken the natural meaning of these words and stripped it of its context. That they have taken the storyline of Scripture and bent it and twisted it in such a way where you can plainly understand that it's out of place. Uh, An easy way to, he uses, uh, for example, the the plays that they had in their day. And he says, if you understood the nature of a play and you had observed the play and you'd followed its story, you would understand if someone had taken one piece and moved it out of its context and put it in a different location. You would be able to see that because you followed the storyline of the play. Mm -hmm. And similarly for us as believers, the way to defend against heresy is the exact same remedy. The way to do it is to know your Bibles inside and out to know the through line and the storyline of scripture, and to know very clearly what the gospel teaches and what, what is the central issues of scripture, what is it trying to deal with? And I think that's something that's gonna become pretty obvious as we go into our time together tonight, that the, the kind of false teaching we face today in the church is no different than the kind of false teaching that Irenaeus was up against. Gnosticism in the early church got its power from the fact that it used the same vocabulary and it took advantage of very inexperienced believers And that's the exact same way that false teaching makes its inroads into the church today. What it does is it sounds very Christian. It uses Christian language. It uses Christian terminology. It quotes Christian scripture. But even Satan can quote scripture when it suits his means. It doesn't mean he's interpreting it correctly. It doesn't mean he's applying it correctly. And so we also must be wise, as as Christ says, be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. You need to be a discerning group of people because he's sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And so we shouldn't be surprised when attacks happen. We shouldn't be surprised when 2000 years later, there are some things we haven't perfectly sorted out yet. There are still some doctrines that are kind of up for debate, doctrines that people still discuss and debate today. Those doctrines are not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about things that have been solidified as orthodoxy for the last, essentially 1500 years of the church. These are things that are no longer being debated as to whether they are or are not orthodox. And I'm thankful for that because many of the things that were debated in the first couple hundred years of the church are very difficult to wrap your mind around things like the nature of the Trinity, the nature of Christ. It is very comforting to me that we stand so far downstream of very learned thinkers in the church that God has blessed us with. I'm very thankful for that, and I think all of us should be, because we can look back in time and we can learn from them. And I think that's something that's going to benefit us greatly in our time together tonight as well.